Hello, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 7, Truth Be Told. of this episode is sola scriptura, the doctrine that the Bible contains all knowledge necessary for salvation and holiness, and that it is the ultimate authority and rule of faith for the believer. We'll look at what serves instead as the authority for Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, as well as the view of some Christians, such as the Churches of Christ, who take sola scriptura to what I think is an unjustified extreme. Before we get into all that, I wanted to remind you that this podcast is available in the Zune Marketplace as well as the iTunes Store, and I invite you to leave me comments in both those places if you'd like others to know what you think of the show. Also, The Apologetics now has a Facebook page where I'll be notifying followers of new blog posts and podcast episodes, and where you can interact with me and other listeners in a less formal format than at my blog. Just search for The Apologetics at Facebook and look for the green logo and click like to let me know that you enjoy the show. By the way, speaking of the logo, in case you're curious, I thought I might explain what it is. It's kind of silly, just like the word the apologetics, but I like how it looks, so I think that I'll stick with it. Anyway, the, the word theology originates from the Greek word theos, uh, which means God. And that begins with the Greek letter theta. I might be mispronouncing that, and if I am, I apologize. But anyway, theta looks like a big circle with a small horizontal line in the middle. The word apologetics comes from the Greek apologia, which begins with the Greek letter alpha, which looks like a little cursive A. So if you look closely at my logo, you'll see the letter alpha inside the letter theta and merged with its horizontal line. That's all, nothing complicated or creative, just two Greek letters merged together, letters which begin the words that themselves are merged in the name of my podcast. Finally, like last episode, I don't have a prepared promo to play, so I've sort of hodgepodged together a promo for another show that I enjoy and highly recommend. Give it a listen. You're unbelievable. Welcome along. It's Saturday afternoon. That can mean only one thing here on Premier Christian Radio. It's the time of the week when we engage in Christian debate and discussion uh, with people of no faith, some faith, or... Um, all kinds of worldviews, really, here on Unbelievable, the show that gets you thinking, we hope. Uh, don't forget, we're online at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. This program available very shortly as a podcast there and many, many more besides. You're unbelievable. I highly uh, enjoy and recommend the Unbelievable radio show with Justin Brierley. When I found out about it, I went crazy, going back and downloading dozens upon dozens upon dozens of shows, and uh, very few of them have let me down. And what I really like as a Christian is that even though the uh, every show pits a Christian against a non-Christian, or in some cases a Christian against a Christian of a different persuasion, in any case, after every single show, I feel edified in my faith. Um, the 
atheists and people of other worldviews on the show just don't seem to uh, pose any challenge to the Christian worldview, and it leaves me strengthened in my faith. But also, it encourages me to think, uh, something that, you know, I think that we need to do more of. Um, so please do give his uh, show a listen, check it out, and uh, I'll include a link in the show notes. And with that, let's move right into the topic of this episode. Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Evangelical Protestants all claim to teach and believe what is revealed in the Bible. We all profess that the Bible is the holy word of the holy God, and that in it is contained at least some of the revelation from God concerning truth, faith, and salvation. But when it comes to the means by which the truths in Scripture are apprehended properly, that is, the method by which a follower of Christ comes to truly understand them, there are essentially two approaches. Evangelical Protestants, holding to the doctrine of sola scriptura, believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority and rule of faith when it comes to what Christians are to believe and practice. We believe that anything that any human being teaches must be tested in light of scripture and verified to conform to what the Bible teaches, and that any claim that is not compatible with it must be rejected. Furthermore, we believe that anything taught which is extra-biblical, that doesn't necessarily contradict scripture but adds to it, is not something which has any authority over the believer. It's not something that God demands we accept. Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, on the other hand, reject sola scriptura and believe that God-inspired leaders within their institutions have the gift and authority to correctly extract and explain the truths of scripture for we laypeople. Regarding Catholicism, the Catholic Encyclopedia puts it this way, Catholics hold that there may be, that there is in fact, and that there must of necessity be, certain revealed truths apart from those contained in the Bible. They hold furthermore that Jesus Christ has established, in fact, a living organ as much to transmit scripture and written revelation as to place revealed truth within reach of everyone, always and everywhere. It goes on to say, as regards biblical interpretation, properly so called, the church is infallible, in the sense that, whether by authentic decision of pope or council, or by its current teaching that a given passage of scripture has a certain meaning, this meaning must be regarded as the true sense of the passage in question. Now, Catholics will deny, I think, that they teach that the authority of the church is greater than that of scripture. They would say, I think, that they are equal. But for the layperson, it is obviously the church which must be viewed as being of higher authority than one's own understanding of Scripture, since, as we just read, what the church teaches concerning the interpretation of Scripture must be viewed as being true. So if an individual understands a passage from Scripture differently from the leadership of the church, he is, by default, wrong, and must accept the contrary teaching of the Catholic Church. Mormons similarly believe that the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has the divine authority to correctly interpret and teach the meaning of Scripture. At the website www.mormon.org, in a page entitled God's Commandments, we read, With so many people and opinions competing for our attention, how do we decide what to believe? To help us know His will, to help us figure out what is true, God calls prophets and apostles to act as His spokesmen. A prophet is a faithful, righteous man chosen by God to speak for him here on earth. Apostles are prophets chosen by God to be special witnesses of Jesus Christ and his divinity. 
In order to speak for God, prophets and apostles must have the priesthood or divine authority required for such a holy responsibility. At LDS.org, under the topic Prophets, we're told, As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are blessed to be led by living prophets, inspired men called to speak for the Lord. We can always trust the living prophets. Their teachings reflect the will of the Lord. And in the Gospel Principles lesson, Prophets of God, it reads, We know that God communicates to the Church through his prophet. A prophet is a man called by God to be his representative on earth. When a prophet speaks for God, it is as if God were speaking. A prophet teaches truth and interprets the word of God. We have a prophet living on earth today. This prophet is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He has the right to revelation for the entire church. We should do those things the prophet tells us to do. President Wilford Woodruff said that a prophet will never be allowed to lead the church astray. So in the same way that Catholics believe the leadership of their institution alone has the authority to properly interpret the scriptures, so too do Mormons believe that the prophets of the LDS Church have that authority. Again, if an individual layperson within that institution understands a passage in the Bible differently from the current living prophet, he is by default wrong, and must instead accept the contrary teaching of the prophet. The same is, in a sense, true of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who likewise teach that God has a latter-day prophet with the authority to interpret the scriptures. This prophet, however, is not an individual, but the governing body of the Jehovah's Witnesses who supervise the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. In the November 1st, 1990 edition of The Watchtower magazine, Jehovah's Witnesses are told, Thus, when direction comes from Jehovah's organization, we can wisely submit to it, knowing full well that Jehovah will only lead us in a way that will be to our everlasting benefit. The February 15th, 1983 edition reads, Jehovah is using only one organization today to accomplish his will. To receive everlasting life in the earthly paradise, we must identify that organization and serve God as part of it. They were more explicit in years gone by. In the 1939 publication, Yearbook of Jehovah's Witnesses, readers are told it should be expected that the Lord would have a means of communicating to his people on the earth, and he has clearly shown that the magazine called The Watchtower is used for that purpose. The 1967 publication, Qualified to be Ministers, reads, Since the Watchtower assists in understanding the Bible, its study is imperative. Private study of the magazine is essential. If we have love for Jehovah and for the organization of his people, we shall not be suspicious, but shall, as the Bible says, believe all things, all the things that the Watchtower brings out. And the February 15, 1967 edition of the Watchtower magazine rhetorically asks, Would not a failure to respond from direction from God through his organization really indicate a rejection of divine rulership? So just as Catholic and Mormon lay people are commanded to submit to the authority of their institution's leaders to correctly interpret scripture, so too are Jehovah's Witnesses commanded to accept as truth that which their governing, governing body, through the watchtower, says of the Bible. Once again, if an individual understands a passage in scripture differently from the governing body, he is by default wrong and must instead accept the contrary teaching of the watchtower. Now, I object to a lot of the doctrines held to by these groups, and they will be featured in future episodes, but I think that this issue of the authority to interpret scripture is the most important one. You see, 
Catholics are taught we can and should pray to dead saints, asking them to intercede, intercede with God on our behalf. And I take issue with that on biblical grounds. But if Catholics held to the doctrine of sola scriptura, we could at least reason from the scriptures together, testing what the Roman Catholic Church teaches in light of the word of God, verifying that that institution is legitimate. Mormons are taught that God was once a human being who himself worshipped his God and that that God was once a man who himself worshipped his God and so on and so forth, stretching infinitely back through eternity. And I take issue with that, obviously, on biblical grounds. But if Mormons held to the doctrine of sola scriptura, we could at least reason from the scriptures together, testing what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints teaches in light of the word of God, verifying that that institution is legitimate. And Jehovah's Witnesses are taught that Jesus was the first being God created, and I take issue with that on biblical grounds, as you'll recall from episode 5. But if Jehovah's Witnesses held to the doctrine of sola scriptura, we could at least reason from the scriptures together, testing what the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society teaches in light of the word of God, verifying that that institution is legitimate. Do you see the real crux of the issue here? When one claims to follow Jesus Christ but believes an institution to be the infallible, authoritative interpreter of the Bible, he gives up any ability whatsoever to test the teachings of that institution. He blindfolds himself and willingly gets to, on the institution's bus to be taken to its destination, wherever that might be, even if it's on its way off a cliff. This, in my humble opinion, is perhaps the most dangerous position one can possibly place himself in. The Bible certainly doesn't ask us to give up such an ability to test the teachings of spiritual leaders. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, God says, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So in other words, an alleged prophet can be tested in at least one way. If he correctly, uh, incorrectly that is, foretells the future, he is a false prophet, and as we'll see in future episodes, this disqualifies the watchtower and the Mormon prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, we read, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here we have an example of an alleged prophet who even performs miraculous signs. But the Israelites were again given a way to test such a prophet. If the prophet said they should follow other gods, they were a false prophet. In fact, the text says that God would send them false prophets to test the Israelites' love for him. The language in the New Testament isn't all that dissimilar. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-9, to 9, Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now note here that Paul is lumping himself in this. He's saying even if we, that is the apostles, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. 
So even the authoritative apostles were um, subject to the testing uh, that, that is here described to confirm that they're not preaching another gospel. He writes also to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of his second letter, I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, but I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He goes on to say, but what I am doing I will continue to continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So yet again, we see this uh, business of people preaching another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And we're told that they're false apostles, deceitful workers, uh, even Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. So we are called as Christians to test what, it, what we are told. And the question becomes, if we view an institution like the Roman Catholic Church, the Watchtower, or the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, if we're to view them as being the infallible interpreter of Scripture that we are to submit to, how can we possibly test them? There is an example in the New Testament, I think, which demonstrates the kind of testing we're to do when we're taught something. Acts chapter 17 depicts Paul spending three weeks in the synagogue at Thessalonica, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, Paul successfully persuaded some of the Jews and many Gentile God-fearers, but many of the Jews rejected the message out of jealousy and wickedness. Starting in verse 10, however, Paul and Silas preach in the synagogue at Berea, and look, uh, look at what Luke, the author of Acts, says of the Bereans. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Luke says the Berean Jews were more noble-minded than the Thessalonian Jews, not just because they were eager to hear Paul's and Silas's message, but because they daily examined the scriptures to test that what they were preaching was true. This, friends, is the measuring rod which God has given us to verify whether or not we're being preached another gospel, another Jesus. Paul was an apostle, a witness to the risen Christ, transformed mightily by the Savior on the road to Damascus, and yet the Berean Jews did not simply reject his message out of hand as did the Thessalonian Jews, nor did they simply submit blindly to his authority. Rather, they confirmed that what he was preaching was true by testing it in light of the authoritative word of God. Why, you might ask, would this be the standard God that has given us, by which we are to test everything anybody teaches us? To answer this question, I think we should begin by looking at the self-testimony of Scripture. Jesus once asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Similarly, how does Scripture respond when we ask, what do you say that you are? Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
Certain translations, including this one, uh, the NASB, do the original text a disservice by rendering the passage using the word inspired. The Greek word originally used is theonoustos, which is a combination of the words theos, meaning God, and nuo, meaning to breathe. Therefore, all scripture, whatever it is to which that refers, is breathed out by God. This has led to other translations rendering the passage in this way. All scripture is God-breathed, so says the NIV. The message, which is a translation I do not recommend, um, and we'll talk about that in future episodes, uh, renders this verse, every part of scripture is God-breathed. The amplified version of the Bible reads, every scripture is God-breathed, and the ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. So you see, it's not merely that God gave the authors of scripture some vague, wishy-washy feeling in guiding them to write what they wrote. The words penned by the authors of the Bible are the very words of God. He breathed them out onto the pages of Scripture. This isn't to suggest that God literally dictated the text of Scripture to the biblical authors. No inerrantist, which is what I am, I believe the words of the Bible to be inerrant. No inerrantist believes that, but it does mean that God moved within them to write precisely the words that they wrote. Now, could it be that I'm overstating the implications of this passage? Does it really mean that the words in the Bible are actually God's words? Well, let's look at some passages that shed further light on what this means. In 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel declares, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Many of the psalms in scripture claim to have been authored by David, and here David says the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. What does it mean that scripture authored by David is breathed out by God? It means David's words were God's words. That when David spoke and his words were transcribed, God was speaking. In Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 70, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. In Acts chapter 3, 17 to 18, we read, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised before through the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. David and the prophets were vessels. It was God doing the speaking. The words contained in Scripture are not just man's words. They are God's words. The Bible is not just the word of God. They are the very words of God. Okay, so, yeah, we're told that the words recorded in the Bible are God's words, but does that really mean that its human authors couldn't have inserted stuff not from God? In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, we read, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The authors of Scripture were not writing down words of their own making. Rather, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak the words God gave them. 
in acts chapter 1 verses 15 to 16 at this time peter stood up in the midst of the brethren a gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said brethren the scripture had to be fulfilled which the holy spirit foretold by the mouth of david concerning judas who became a guide to those who arrested jesus again what was written in scripture is what the holy spirit moved the authors to write but here we have something more the scripture had to be fulfilled why because the authors didn't insert anything that wasn't from god because god said it titus chapter one verses one and two paul a bondservant of god and an apostle of jesus christ for the faith of those chosen of god and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which god who cannot lie promised long ages ago and hebrews chapter six thirteen to eighteen for when god made the promise to abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself god desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for god to lie we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us why was it said that the scripture had to be fulfilled because it contains the promises not of men but of god and it is impossible that god would lie this is important for if the scriptures are the words of god and if god is omniscient then what we read in scripture must be true john chapter seventeen verse seventeen reads sanctify them in the truth your word is truth that's jesus speaking to god romans chapter three verse four says let god be found true though every man be found a liar as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged revelation twenty one verse five and he said write for these words are faithful and true if the scriptures are the very words of god as we've seen the bible claims to be the case then we are told to believe that every word is true because every word is from god we might at this point ask if it is only the old testament scripture that contains the words of god We've thus far only looked at the Bible's claim that the scripture that was available to the New Testament authors was breathed out by God. But is that true of anything beyond the Old Testament? Just before, we saw that John wrote the true and faithful words of God in the book of Revelation, but there's more. In Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 17, Peter writes, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness so remember that in the beginning uh that earlier we saw that the bible says all scripture is god breathed here we see that Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, groups all of Paul's writings together with the rest of the scriptures. So when Peter speaks of Paul's letters and then says that they are sometimes hard to understand along with the, uh, the rest of the scriptures, we see that Peter uh, considers Paul's letters scripture. Therefore, it falls under the category of all scripture and thus must be as breathed out by God as the rest. Paul's words are God's words. And indeed, Paul tells us as much. He writes in Ephesians chapter 3, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul tells his readers that when they read his letters, they can understand his insight, 
And what is his insight? That which was revealed to him. <clears throat> and whereas in previous generations, those in which the Old Testament scriptures were written, certain things of God were hidden. In Paul and Christ's other holy apostles, those mysteries have been revealed. They are not merely spoke, speaking their own thoughts and ideas, they are writing the very revelation of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14.37, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, he writes, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul clearly believed that what he was passing on in his letters was the Lord's commandment, by the word of the Lord, and that it was explicitly said by the Spirit of God. But it is not only Paul's words that are the words of God. In John chapter 3, verses 32 to 34, we read, What Jesus has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So Jesus also spoke the words of God, and Jesus' words are recorded in the Gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament. And Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. That was in Matthew 5, 17-18. And in Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass away. The law and the prophets is a reference to the Tanakh, otherwise known as the Old Testament. Jesus tells us that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Old Testament until all is accomplished. Indeed, he went so far as to say his words would not pass away. It's difficult to escape the implications of what we've read. What would the Bible say if we asked it, what do you say that you are? It would say that it is the words of God breathed through the vessels of men whose own will could not thwart that of God's. Because the words they wrote are, in fact, precisely the words God willed them to write, they are trustworthy because God is true and cannot lie. And as Jesus said, neither the words of the law and the prophets nor the words he himself spoke will pass away. They will endure forever. So, from this sampling of what scripture says of itself, we see that God's word is wholly trustworthy and true. It doesn't ever say anything even remotely like this of the visible institution of the church, whether that be Roman Catholic, Latter-day Saint, or the Jehovah's Witnesses. <clears throat> it's no wonder, then, that the Bereans were praised by Luke for daily examining the scriptures and testing that Paul's message was true. And we, likewise, are called to test everything we're told in light of the God-breathed scripture contained in the Bible. After all, as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In 2 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, You should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Jude says the same thing in verses 17 and 19. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. 
in First John 4 and 1, and, and well, chapter 4, verses 1 and 6, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens, listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The words of God, breathed out onto the pages of Scripture through the prophets and apostles, are to be remembered, knowing that false prophets will come to try and lead us astray. Their words lead to destruction. And how can you tell who genuinely speaks the truth? Since God's word leads to life, you can test the words of men in light of the word of God. Now, one might ask, how do we know we have the capacity to understand God's word properly without submitting to the authority of an institution like the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Watchtower? In beginning to answer this question, I would in turn ask one of my own. If Paul and Silas had the kind of authority these institutions claimed they had, one necessary for properly interpreting the Bible, why were the Bereans praised for testing what they were being told uh, to make sure that it lined up with Scripture? After all, they didn't have the authority necessary to, necessary to properly interpret it. I think the answer to my question is because we do have the capacity to properly interpret it. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verses 12 to 14, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus did not promise that priests, prophets, or governing bodies would come and authoritatively disclose truth to the believer. Rather, he promised that his Holy Spirit would come and guide us into all the truth. In doing so, the Spirit glorifies the Son, for it is what the Son says to the Spirit, which in turn he reveals to us. We do not need priests with the keys to direct and receive revelation for the church. We have guidance from God himself in the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. In John 14:23, we do not need any other prophet than Jesus Christ because his Holy Spirit is inside the believer, revealing to us the truths contained in his word. Now, of course, members of these institutions will raise objections to what I've said here, and I'll address them in future episodes. But in the meantime, I'll close my case in this portion of the show by sharing with you some powerful words from Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation. When he was publicly rebuking the Catholic Church for its unbiblical teachings, they threatened him with excommunication and death if he did not recant. He replied, Unless therefore I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Now, let me switch gears for a few minutes. I mentioned in the introduction to this episode that some groups, including, I think, the Churches of Christ, take the doctrine of Sola Scriptura to what I think is an unjustified extreme. With as strongly as I've spoken, one might ask what I think such an extreme might look like. Well, it's been my experience, 
that some take sola scriptura so far as to completely ignore and exclude anything whatsoever that followers of Christ have taught throughout history. I was criticized not long ago for quoting the early church fathers so extensively in my podcast. Indeed, you might wonder why I did so as much as I did, given what I've said in this episode. This person, whom I consider a friend, said emphatically that he would never quote from church history if he did a podcast, insisting that his church preaches only the word. So, the extreme I'm talking about is the seeming tendency to study only the Bible to the exclusion of anything Christians might have taught after the words of Scripture were penned. These Christians throughout history seem to be treated as having no value whatsoever. The fact that the church is united concerning certain essentials of the faith would appear to be, to those who hold to this extreme form of sola scriptura, ult uh, ultimately irrelevant. And if the pastor of such a congregation teaches that the Bible says something different from what the church has united upon throughout history, so be it. Their teachings are completely irrelevant. Before I offer up my brief critique of this view, I want to try to illustrate that congregations who think they're preaching the Bible alone are not, in fact, doing so. If the member of one were to tell me they preach the Bible alone, I might first ask, does your pastor preach sermons? I suspect the answer would in nearly every case be yes, and so I would go on to ask, in these sermons, does the pastor explain the text of scripture? Chances are, again, the answer will be yes. And I would respond, does the pastor use some of his own words to explain the text of scripture to help you understand it? And again, the answer will very likely be yes. You see, as soon as the pastor explains using any of his own words whatsoever, the meaning of scripture, he is no longer preaching the Bible alone. But let's imagine an unlikely scenario in which the member of such a congregation says their pastor does not use any of his own words and merely reads the text of scripture verbatim. I would ask, does your pastor change the tone, pitch, and volume of his voice while reading? Does he make any bodily and facial expressions? <laughs> you see, any vocal reading of scripture is going to be shaped by one's own personal interpretation of the text. One's understanding of the text, even if only the text is spoken, is going to spill out to the congregation in the form of changes in vocal tone and hand gestures and facial expressions, things I'm doing right now as I speak. Unless one is reading the text of scripture in a monotone voice of constant volume, standing rigidly as still as possible, using no gestures whatsoever, one cannot truly preach the Bible alone. But let's go a step further into hypothetical absurdity. Let's say the member of such a congregation affirms that no, their pastor does not use any words of his own and does in fact read the text of scripture standing perfectly still and in a monotone, unchanging voice. You know what I'd ask? Is he reading from the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek? You see, if he's not, then what he's reading is either being influenced by his own translation of the original languages or by the translation performed by others. And in either case, the translator's understanding of the meaning of the text is going to spill through in the translation itself. And I'll go a step further. Even if the pastor read from the original languages, assuming that the congregants spoke and understood those languages fluently, their understanding of the meaning of the text is going to shape their beliefs. There's just no getting around it. You cannot truly preach the Bible alone. But here's the thing. That's okay. My case has not been, nor does the doctrine of sola scriptura teach, that we are to, in isolation, as Lone Ranger Christians, understand the text of scripture apart from the rest of the church. It is true that we must test what others teach in light of the revealed word of God, but it is not true that we are to be entirely uninfluenced by others in the church. Proverbs 27:17 says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
And the Word of God says that God has given to the church those with the spiritual gift of teaching. Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 11 to 13 says, He gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up the, of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Romans 12, 6 and 7 says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, of, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching. You see, gifted teachers of Scripture are gifts themselves from God to the church, to equip the saints and build up the body of Christ. They can help us properly understand Scripture. Of course, they can lead us astray, and James said in chapter 3 of his epistle that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. This is why we are to test them in light of Scripture. They assist us. They are not authoritative over Scripture. But here's the point I'm getting at. If God has given to the church gifted teachers to help us understand the Word of God, why would we utterly ignore those gifted teachers from antiquity? Why is my pastor the only gifted teacher I am to allow to influence my understanding of the Word? Why must I exclude John Calvin, Martin Luther, Matthew Henry, or the very early fathers like Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and so on and so forth? So long as I test the teachings of Christians throughout history in light of what Scripture teaches, I'm perfectly justified and, I would argue, urged by God who gifted them to the church to take seriously what they taught and consider them carefully. Thus, if someone preaches something that doesn't seem to sit well with the teaching of Scripture, it's not only legi legitimate, but wise and important to look at what the Church has taught. And if what's preached to us not only seems to contradict Scripture, but also goes contrary to the unified voice of the Church since its inception, such as the view that Jesus was created, or that God was once a man, or a whole host of other false doctrines, the fact that the Church has been so united ought to be leveled against, uh, sorry, ought to be leveled alongside Scripture as evidence against the false teaching. The testimony of the Church through history must be tested in light of Scripture, but nevertheless is important. Anyway, I've gone on and on for a long time now, and I'll go ahead and I'll wrap this up. The doctrine of sola scriptura teaches that the Bible contains the very words of God, breathed out through men through whom he spoke. Its contents are true and without error, for God is true and cannot lie. Welcome to the place where we follow the Bible, man. Yeah, sola scriptura, man. You know what I'm saying? We esteem the Bible highly. Scriptures alone. And we know it's the final authority, man. Let's get into it. Talk to him. God promises that Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit have the capacity to understand God's Word and exhorts us to test what anybody tells us in light of His revelation in Scripture. We are not called to blindly get on the bus of the Roman Catholic Church or that of the Mormons in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of the Jehovah's Witnesses and their Watchtower Bible and Tract Society or, for that matter, any number of other institutions which claim to have authority to interpret the scripture for you, to which you must submit. Rather, we are called to test their claims in light of scripture and reject that which is false, which, in my opinion, is a whole lot when speaking of these other institutions. On the other hand, we are not called to live as Lone Ranger Christians, completely ignoring the testimony of the church throughout history. Just as God gifts the church with teachers today, 
so too has he done throughout history, and he has given many of them insights into the word of God which are intended to build us up as the body of Christ. Your church, I promise you, is not preaching the Bible alone. And that's okay. Your pastor may have the gift of teaching and his insights are worth considering. So too may be the pastors of numerous other congregations operating today, as well as those of numerous congregations throughout history. God intended for us to glean from them many, of, many certain truths which we would have otherwise missed. They are his gifts to us, then and today. I don't know if I'm one of those gifted teachers that God has given to the church. Time will tell, and in the meantime, I'm just an average Joe in the pews like you. But I do appreciate you for listening along to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast, and I hope you'll join me next time. Until then. Thank you.